As we come to the reading of the word today, I'm going to remind us that, um, that God has something in this for us. So just before I read the word, I'm going to pray for the reading. And Father, I ask that today as we read this word and hear this word, that we recognize you in the passage and that you open our hearts to receive with gladness all that you have for us here. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word and that you will speak to us today. The scripture reading today is from Numbers 1, 1 through 19, and I ask your indulgence for all the names. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Elizor, the son of Shedor, from Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zor Shaddai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, from Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helion, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedahuzur, from Benjamin, Abedan, the son of Gideon, from Dan, Ahiazar, the son of Aminishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasaph, from the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These are the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the head of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. For those of you that are new, you're probably wondering after that scripture reading, what kind of church did I choose to attend today? <laughs> Interesting passage. And I chose it. We do not follow um, a system for going through the scriptures. It's up to me as the pastor, um, designed to um, equip you, if you're a follower of God, for the work of ministry, which is to love God and the people that he's put into your life. And I chose, with that as my mandate from the book of Ephesians, to preach through the Bible in the summers, one book at a time, book by book, through the book. And when you open your table of contents and you see the word numbers, I'm betting you're not like, ooh, I'm reading that today. Yet the Hebrew title of the book is Into the Wilderness. Because after the structure that God gives to his people, they move into the wilderness. One of the challenges of reading the first five books of scripture is that they change genre all the time. So you have creation, which is outside of time in the way that we think about it. In chapters 1 through 11, this is the book of Genesis. And then chapters 12 through 50 are the pursuit of a family. 
the book of Exodus is both about the exodus of the nation of Israel, which went from a, a group of 70 to a group of between 1.2 and 2 million people out of slavery. The tabernacle is built and God is with his people beautifully. He's creating a, a theocracy. The book of Leviticus, though challenging to us to, to, to deal with the overlapping systems of sacrifice and description of God being with his people, which is what that book is primarily about. And in the book of Numbers, not much time has elapsed. And so if we're thinking about it, if we were watching this, not knowing all the text that we would have later, we would think, how are these slaves going to become a nation that represents God to themselves and to the watching world? Because that is what the people of God do. They are to bless all those they come into contact with. Psalm 105 and 78 and 106, the psalmist is a little bit harsh about what happens in Numbers because after the structure, which is the first nine chapters of the book, the people set out. And if you've read the book, it's very, very, very interesting. It mirrors Exodus in a lot of ways in the, in the cadence of it and in the propensity of the people to rebel against God. Jesus references uh, a story from Numbers in John chapter 3, a very odd story. And the connection is um, that it was very odd to look at a man dying on a cross and believe that that could be the hope of the world. Perhaps that is even more odd than the story he's referencing, which is when poisonous snakes were attacking the nation of Israel. But if you looked at a bronze snake, you would be healed of the disease. And we need to get something straight before I jump into um, the way I'm going to preach the book of Numbers to you. I do hope this is at least in your top five of sermons you've heard on the entire book of Numbers in one Sunday. (laughs) The Bible is the true story of God's pursuit of his people. And you can believe that the Bible presents itself that way even if you're not sure about the Bible. And I need to say that because I talk with people all the time that don't understand the historical authenticity of the Scriptures. Displayed in all sorts of ways. Displayed in the number of manuscripts we still have. Displayed in the interdependency of the text with one another. Continues to this day. So, the Bible is the true story of God's pursuit of his people, and you can believe and understand that, and if you're not a Christ follower, and you understand that about the Scripture, you're about as intellectually honest and full of integrity as any human, because that is the way the Bible presents itself, freeing you to either accept or reject or continue to question on that merit. That being said... Wilderness is where God's people grow from slaves into free people. From passivity into active worship of him and care for one another. If wilderness is the space between secure spaces, we know that there is opportunity for us to grow up and mature in those spaces though most of the time we do not like it. We're afraid. We're anxious. 
Some of us actually get really excited in a wilderness, which is our way of doing fear and anxiety. There's potential for us to learn and grow and receive new clarity about what we already believe. And that's what we watch the nation of Israel do. They send 12 spies to look at the land. Ten of them are like, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. Two of them are like, no, we can do it. Do you guys not remember the Exodus? Eventually, this devolves into the people wanting to stone the two guys. They're like, no, we can do it. People were anxious. Though they were slaves in Egypt, when they were in Egypt, they didn't wonder where their food was going to come from. Then in the wilderness, they wondered where their food was going to come from. And they responded poorly. And this is where the the writers of uh, Psalm 105 and 78 and 106 are a little harsher than I am because I've seen a lot of documentaries and read books and I know that a people that for 430 years are a slave don't just know how to be free people. It's not intuitive. It's not obvious. Even though God made a way, even though he was literally camping in the middle and they were to point their tents towards him so that they saw the fire by night and the cloud of smoke by day and remembered that he's with his people. Even as they were performing rituals to remind themselves that God is with his people because he knows that's their dominant need. And so he gave them a way to integrate their withness with him. They still complained. And in their fear, would act rashly. I know you never do that out of fear, but I do. And so when the Israelites were like, all right, let's go into battle, which was kind of the plan after the spies went in, but they hadn't prayed. They hadn't gone to their guide, Moses, and said, what do we do now? We screwed up. And the battle did not go well. And this happens again and again and again. There's a story of a, of a, um, a shaman of a different nation who actually became a follower of God, I think, because of the reputation from the Exodus. And the nation, this is Balaam and Balak. You might remember it as the time that the Lord opened the mouth of Balaam's donkey to speak truth into his life. I'm not kidding. Numbers is one of the most interesting books in the Bible. If you need to skim the structure of the first nine chapters, do it. And then it gets really interesting. And he cannot curse God's people because he's a follower of God and he agrees to do what God tells him, which is a repeated story in the scriptures. Foreigners, those new to the faith, are oftentimes more obedient and faithful than God's people. The reason I was so persnickety about the Bible being the true story of God's pursuit of his people is I do want to talk about the wilderness for a moment. I hope you don't seek the wilderness. Remember when I was young and some people would be like, you should pray to suffer. (laughs) Now I'm 45 and I'm like, oh, please don't do that, people. But you will experience it. There will be many wildernesses in your life. And the challenge is to attend to them. In prayer, in conversation, sometimes with professional help, depending upon the level and the length of the wilderness.
when I was ordained in 2009, I realized people started approaching me differently. And the dominant question that they would ask in my office was essentially, after telling me a story, am I crazy or was that a big deal? And most of the time, about four out of five, we would mourn together and talk about seeking the Lord's healing and peace. One out of five times it was like, actually, it was not a big deal. Those are very challenging conversations. Most of the time, it was a big deal. And we talk about the slow but real path of growth and healing, even in the wilderness, though we would never choose it. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. A lot of pastors talk about the wilderness, and then they'll say, I've heard some of my very favorite, some of the clearest preachers I've ever heard say, I've never met anyone who would trade what they learned for the experience. And I'm like, let's talk. (laughs) I would trade a lot of the experiences, but I'm also grateful for how God grows us in maturity and love for him and neighbor in the wilderness. Into the wilderness, the slaves that were 70 when they came with Joseph, the end of the book of Genesis, 430 years later, between 1.1 and 1.2 million, are still used to being slaves, and they complain a lot. And there's a way that you can complain, and this goes for all of us too, that's humble and good and still a complaint. And there's a way to complain that's very dangerous for the people of God that looks to idols that will harm us, metaphorically for us, literally for them. There's a rebellion in Numbers led by a man named Korah. If you're familiar with your Bible, you get to the songs in the Psalms, it's not the same guy. So it's like, we can't celebrate these guys' Psalms. How did these get in here? It's a different Korah. And he's jealous of Moses. And that's where the rebellion comes from. And God is so gracious, not only to rescue the people from those who followed Korah because they could have done far worse than what God did to them, which was have them swallowed up by the ground. He then gives each tribe a staff, and he has Aaron's staff bud with flowers to remind them that he's watching over his people, and he gave them the structure he gave them on purpose. And if Korah wants to be involved, there's a humble and good way to do that, and there's a bad way to do it. Most of the most troubling stories in the Scripture if you'll ask for just a second, what's the humble version of this? Many of your questions will be answered. One of the problems of of many of the people that are not followers of Jesus or even theists is the conquest of Canaan that we'll see two books from now in the book of Joshua. In the book of Numbers, multiple times, Israel is kind to its neighbors and says, we would just like to pass through. We'll pay you anything you need for water. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. They're like, no, stay out. And then they like attack them, which is nuts because they knew what happened to Egypt. If Mexico receives divine power and is able to subdue all the countries of the world. By the way, what happened with the Israelites is even more fantastical than that example. And then we decide to like put up tariffs and attack them. That would be bananas, right? The whole ancient Near East knew that the superpower was destroyed, not by the slaves, though they were numerous, but by God, who visited back on them what they had done to the slaves and then led them out. 
And so the neighbors are supposed to respond kindly and even humbly. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but what should the mayor of Jericho done? He should have worshipped the Lord. What would have happened? What happened in Nineveh with the prophet Jonah? Now I'm asking you to like remember your whole Bible at the same time. My point is, when we get to a challenging story, and there are many in Numbers, if you approach it and Numbers invites this, what would a humble version of this complaint or problem or jealousy look like? And how would the Lord have responded then? The first time the Lord disciplines the people of Israel in Numbers, there's no loss of life. It's just a further show of his power. But as the complaints get worse, as the jealousy gets worse, as people start active rebellions against this just infant government, God increases the level of severity because of the harm that they could perpetrate against one another. I was thinking about Korah's rebellion, and I, the friends of mine that are, know their Bible really well would probably say, well, God could have just spoken to Korah instead of being harsh with him, which took a couple of days, which were all opportunities for Korah to be humble before God and Moses and Aaron. Here's the thing. God already did speak to him through the commandments at Sinai, through the tent of meeting that his rebellion happened in front of, through the words of Moses and Aaron. And then right after this story, God encourages the people of Israel to put blue tassels on their garment so that they more easily and quickly remember who he is. He is a rescuer the book of Exodus. He's a creator. He is a God who is with his people. That's the book of Leviticus. And I think Numbers shows us that God is a good parent. And once a child is of a certain age, we have to let them fail in ways that absolutely terrify us. Yes, my daughter has her learner's permit, and she's a great driver. I am not a good teacher. It's terrifying. Parents have to let their children get further and further out into the world, maybe even the wilderness. And as we watch, we're anxious and nervous. That's God leading the people in numbers from their um, instinctive passivity into freedom. Into the wilderness, slaves grow and they grow in humility. The reason that I asked Beth to read Numbers 1, 1 through 19 is the first part of the book is the Lord giving them structure. And friends, we've got to understand this because people will say that any religion is a way of controlling people. But theologically, freedom is not no structure. Freedom is life-giving structure. In the Bible, there is either life-destroying structure or life-giving structure. There's no third way. Those are the options. And if that's true, then when we notice in Numbers, God giving structure for worship, for giving, and for uh, fighting for military armies, we see his care for the nation of Israel and how he's creating space for them to grow into his nation that is to bless the world. This nation was strong, and they didn't know it. That's why he made them take a census, which probably means they began training militarily at the same time. 
And the reason I, I call this humility is we get, in my opinion, we get humility wrong. Humility is what we're good at and what we're not good at, honest before God and others. It's not thinking less of yourself. Some people like to say it's thinking of yourself less, and I think that's a component of humility. Humility is also where are you strong and where are you not? Being comfortable with both. Years ago, I taught a, um, a homiletics class to people here that, that both do preach and are interested in preaching, and my wife took it, and she gave me a really incredible compliment. She said, you take for granted that you're good at this. And if you're like, you're not that good at it, that's fine. But she thinks I am. And what's challenging about a true biblical understanding of humility is, okay, thanks, means a lot. And then being absolutely humbled that you're all looking at me and in some measure listening to me talk about numbers. God gave them structure because they were strong and didn't know it for their military endeavors that were to come very quickly. He gave them structure for worship, which is corporate and individual. The New Testament gives both a more specific structure to us that we worship on Sunday, what you're all doing now, good job showing up, and individual worship, both then and now. I hope that your worship has good structure. Uh, we moved last October, and it totally disrupted my prayer life because I had ways that I was comfortable and used to praying, and I have to build new structure around that. Getting to church is not challenging, so we don't live far away, but it's different. Having conversations with people about scriptures, all of those are part of our corporate, this, an individual structure for the worship of God. And you need that structure also. God gave them a structure for tithing. And the picture of it um, is so beautiful. It's used throughout the New Testament. All of this is used throughout the New Testament as both a historical thing that happened and a metaphor for life with God. God gives them all of this bounty, loot, gold and silver and other things from Egypt as they're leaving. And the Egyptians were thrilled to give it to them because it meant they were leaving. Then God gives them land. Then God gives them um, more bounty whenever they have a military conflict with another nation. Then he tells them to give some of it back to him, which is a metaphor for the same structure for us. If we believe God is sovereign, then all that we have is his anyway. We believe some portion of it goes back to him for his work. And this is actually a picture of freedom because freedom is not no structure. Freedom is life-giving structure. What God is guiding them away from is the arrogance of the religions around them, which believed that you could manipulate God, but also in their fear, they would sometimes cower away from God, and God is growing them out of both of those tendencies. Into the wilderness, slaves grow in humility and fidelity. The reason that the psalmists that talk about numbers are harsh is they want people to remember who God is to worship and follow him. But he is indeed a God slow 
to anger, and abounding in steadfast covenantal love. And you see the people grow in humility. Those of you that read the book of Numbers in preparation for the sermon, there are people that do that. The last chapter is odd. It's about the daughters of Zelophadad. You can live tweet this. You'll get, it'll, it'll start trending right away. And we're not positive who they are, though they might be the daughters of the man who was caught breaking the Sabbath earlier in the book. And they come to Moses and they say, in all the law that we've been given so far, there's no room for us. There's no land or space for us because our father died in his sin. That's the text. And they come humbly. And Moses goes before God humbly. And what happens? 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, women become landowners and are connected to the covenant family and are given an inheritance. Which is a beautiful picture of how God interacts at that time with I'm trying to figure out how to say this. It was absolutely radical that 3,000 years ago, especially perhaps in the ancient Near East, God gave provision for these women and included them fully as heirs to the land. And what that reminds us of, I hope, is that God is always a faithful father to his people. We're challenged by some of the wildness of the bronze serpent, the talking donkey, the earth swallowing up the false prophet and rebellious leader in numbers. And yet to protect 1.2 to 2 million people, God removed some because he's always a faithful father to his people. In your own wildernesses, it is challenging to remember that. Sometimes it's impossible. We cannot believe that he is both good and all-powerful. That's actually why we return to the text. That's why we worship together. That's why we converse with one another about our stories. In an effort to remember who he is and receive by faith not only his spirit, but healing. Healing is partial in this life, but make no mistake, it is available. What is healing? It means you can carry your story without it crushing you or without you needing to, to shove it away with a vice. That's often what it looks like when we come out of the wilderness. Make no mistake, healing is available because God is a faithful father to his people. If your faith is in Jesus, that includes you. And if you're considering the gospel, know that that is a central part of the good news is that we receive life right now. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you draw to mind 
especially in the wildernesses of our life, but also in the daily, mundane days, the truth that you are always a good and faithful father to your people. Jesus, we are so thankful for your work that you were raised up like the strange bronze serpent and that through your work on the cross we receive life. We are so grateful for that truth. We are so grateful for that work and the power that accompanies it. Amen.